4: Friday morning the 6th of January Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reid on LMFM The Department of Finance is reporting uh, this week that tax revenue in 2022 was 83.1 billion euro That's an increase of 14.7 billion or 22% on last year. Income tax has gone up by 15% VAT has gone up By over 20%, but corporation tax of 22.6 billion euro last year is a whopping. 50% higher than a year earlier and for the first time ever corporation tax is uh, the second largest source of tax revenue for the exchequer. The exchequer, by the way, recording a surplus of €5 billion euro last year. It's a lot of money in anybody's book. Let's speak uh, to the Labour Party spokesperson on finance, Jed Nash, who's a TD for Loud and East Mead. and A very good morning to you. And thank you indeed for joining us on uh, the programme this morning uh, it gives uh, the government a very good start to the new year doesn't
5: it? it certainly those and, and it continues on from uh, where uh, the uh, Exchequer uh, returns left off um, the last time uh, the, they, they reported uh, just at the end of the last um, Quite a, uh, sorry, the third last quarter of last year, um, very impressive figures in anybody's language, as you say, uh, Michael. Uh, the economy uh, clearly is doing very, very well. Uh, but we have a two-tier economy and we have a two-tier society. It's interesting this week that, uh, despite you know the fact that the country is objectively doing very well and everybody would welcome that. We still have very significant levels of deprivation. We have a quarter of children who are living in deprivation. Uh, We have a situation where the number of people who say they can't afford to uh, own, sorry, can't afford to eat uh, their own homes has doubled uh, over the last year. And that's uh, CSO stats from the um, Silk uh, report that was issued this week. So there's big challenges for government. And, you know, there'll be no... um, sense of satisfaction from anybody who's listening in this morning at that who may be waiting on a hospital bed somebody who might be waiting for a place Well that's that's the
4: question I want to come to can it provide a hospital bed or can it provide a house or whatever the case may be now I I think uh, there is a consensus uh, that this money can't be relied on and if Taxes amounted to over 83 billion for the government last year. It, it doesn't necessarily follow that there'll be the same amount this year or next year or so on, or, or that. For uh, the most important part of that statement, there will be £22.6 billion coming in corporation tax, because that's actually just coming from about 10 or 15 different companies, isn't it? Uh, so it's feeding into this surplus of £5 billion. Uh, You don't want to rely on that uh, for budgeting next year. Uh, the government uh, seems intent on putting it away for a rainy day. Many people would argue it's lashing rain at the moment.
5: Well, that's it. And, you know, the, the, there are two trashes of money that government put away t- into the so-called rainy day fund. Um, and they, they agreed to do that on, on budget night. And uh, we had some issues uh, with that, by the way, uh, about the, the level of debate. I mean, we had a, a debate uh, lasting about a half an hour. And in fact, at a push, we, we had the press to have that debate. I mean, it's quite extraordinary that, you know, it's up to the Oireachtas to actually make the government makes the budget recommends it to the Oireachtas. Uh, and we only had a very limited amount of time to actually... Debate the pros and cons about putting that money into what's known as a rainy day fund, um, you know, for, for the future. Um, you're absolutely right. I mean, it is it is raining on so many people now. Uh, I mean, inflation is at uh, 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 the highest it's been, and. 40 years, uh, people are really, really struggling, and I've said time and again, since Budget Day, and in fact, the advance of Budget Day in late September, Michael, it seems like a long time ago now, once the 4.1 billion euro sugar rush of once-off measures uh, has, has dissipated, which they will, and have done in fact in the first week uh, of, of this year, excluding uh, some of the measures, like for example the 200 euro electricity grant, one of which will be coming now uh, in January, then people will find themselves in real difficulty. Why, why do I say that? I say that because Covid decided not to introduce inflation-busting or inflation-matching social welfare increases, a twelve euro increase that people will experience this week in their pension, in job seekers payment and disability payment and so on. That actually is, is an erosion of your spending power because it just does not keep up mm. with the rate of inflation. The same as the national minimum wage is up eighty cents. That's below inflation. We've argued for inflation matching at least uh, increases to the national minimum wage. And we've underspend as well as it shows the in, incapacity of government actually to 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 actually de- deal with uh, what we might term the economic success. Okay. Uh, the country is up actually doing well and we have a half a billion euro lying in a fund in the Department of Housing at a time of unprecedented crisis in terms of housing. Now some of that money will be used actually to, as we know, to uh, relieve local authorities of uh, house, housing uh, debt or housing land acquisition debt that they built up in the uh, you know twenty years ago, uh, and you know uh, and some of that land actually exists in Drumhead and Barnum-McKinney Road, for example. That's a good thing, uh, but we shouldn't be at the end of a year, uh, you know, in the middle of a housing crisis, where there's a half a billion euro unspent uh, in the demand of Housing. Yeah, it really
4: is. It's an incredible uh, amount of money five hundred million uh, that was allocated for housing that went unspent. Uh, there is hope on the horizon, though, with uh, the cost of living, isn't there? I mean the international price of gas is dropping. We're already seeing uh, the price of petrol and diesel coming down at uh, the pumps and so on. On the other hand, there's all of this uncertainty because of the war, of course, uh, and we don't know what's going to happen. Uh, And we may end up needing that €5 billion and more to get people through even harder times.
5: Well, well, I I think so, and and, and this is the point. I mean, this this is why there's a political game going on I think which is damaging um, and is is creating real Certainly an adversity for people. Uh, I, I predicted um, as soon as uh, the ink was dry on the budget in September that we'll be back in the doll in February or March debating the need for additional resources to be allocated to the uh, households across the country who need the most support. In other words, the people who will be be seeing you know, below inflation uh, increases to the minimum wage, below inflation Social welfare, people who would be, you know, people on middle incomes would find it really, really difficult uh, to make ends meet. Mm. And it seems that, you know, government has been indicating in their pre Christmas interviews and early into, into the new year now that, you know, they may use some of the rainy day fund money to alleviate some of that pain. Mm. They should have had a much clearer um, plan. And that should have actually appeared in the budget, the actual budget in twenty uh, uh, of twenty twenty two, leading into twenty twenty three. Is it possible to, to be clear? rather than rather than making politicised decisions, you know, decisions, um, mm. you know in, in a blaze of publicity? Um,
4: but is it clear, is a clear. Is it possible to be clear when there's so much uncertainty?
5: Well. Uh, w- there are a few things that we could be very certain about we could be certain for example that you know if you did not have in- inflation matching increases uh to ensure that the purchasing power of people who are dependent on the state for their income you know is 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 is, is, is mesh mm. uh, you know we we, we, were, we were very clear on that we were clear that there would be a low inflation increase to the national mm. minimum wage we were clear on all of these things but government decided politically that this the. that was not what they were going to do. But I think they will be coming back uh, and I think there's an inevitability because of the difficulties that people will be experiencing over the next period of time. When, for example, the electricity credit runs out in March, there's two electricity credits due, €200 in January, €200 in March. They'll be coming back I think as well to review, for example, the VAT reduction on fuel, the VAT reduction on electricity bills as well. We costed the the extension of the VAT reduction on on electricity bills uh, uh, late last year uh, because we not that's running out very very shortly to take that to the end of the year would cost about 150 million euros and that really would provide some relief to uh, households who have no option other than to pay their electricity bill
4: Yeah but you need permission so from Europe to do that don't you?
5: No I do believe that's possible to do that and one thing that would be possible to do as well Michael that wasn't done unfortunately anywhere across the European Union was uh, actually maintain the reduced rate of that on antigen testing mm. you mm. might think that's a minor issue I
4: think it's a huge issue I think it's a, particularly yeah. as we're we're facing into a, a huge uh, uh, wave, another wave of uncertainty, there's uh, a lot of concern about what's happening in China and if a new variant will uh, hit us uh, and so on, and people uh, may decide not to test themselves because it's expensive to do it now because of uh, the VAT being reapplied, but having said that, that's that's a decision that is being made for us by our European
5: masters. Well, it's a decision that's been made collectively across the European Union, and that's why you know Ireland obviously is one of the twenty seven member states mm. as a role, in that, and it seems that nobody bothered uh, to have this discussion at the European level uh, uh, late last year to say, look, do we need to extend this VAT rate reduction uh, on antigen testing kits? Given uh, what we know, we're going to be facing into the new year and into 2023. Covid has far from gone away. We know anybody working in our local hospital will tell you that, or anybody in fact mm. switched on at all will understand that there are people in their own households you have COVID it is, it, it, it is an issue in our community again and it will continue to be an issue and it is completely wrong headed not to have you know reviewed that okay. you know it, 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 antigen testing kits should have been zero rated continues to be zero rated for that because it is price sensitive there's no doubt about that In particularly mm. in the middle of a cost living crisis when people are making choices about heating or heating, uh you know uh, people need access to it OK these,
4: l- l- let's come back to that. the the money that uh, the government uh, has uh, at its disposal, if you like, this 5 billion euro that has come as a windfall, that has come unexpectedly uh, onto the lap of uh, the government. Uh, You're the spokesperson on finance for the Labour Party. You shadow the Minister for Finance. If there was to be an election and you were to assume that role as Minister, what would you do with the 5 billion euro?
5: Okay. well, what what I would do uh, was uh, I would revisit uh, the question of uh, social welfare increases for the people who, as I say, rely on the state for their income because they they are the people who are going to be most exposed over the next period. Of time. How much of it would you it spend like on he-
4: those increases?
5: Uh, about another billion euros, uh, Michael. Okay. Um, and, 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 and just going back to the original to bring point, actually rates of twenty euro. Okay, than twelve euro. Okay, week. but just
4: going back to the original point that if you didn't have the same kind of uh, taxes raised this year as last year, uh, and you were uh, recording a deficit of five billion, uh, and you'd increase welfare by a, a billion, that would suddenly would be six billion. Uh, you, the the idea here is don't spend money uh, you don't have or you're not sure. you won't have.
5: Well, 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 that's it. I mean, but there is some r- wriggle room and n- nobody could, could um, uh, charge my, uh, make the charge my own party about being irresponsible with the public finances. We need to make sure, because we know where that got this country uh, back in the 2000s when, you know, governments, uh, the, the last Fianna Fáil Green government was spending more than we were taking in and it was a very sudden collapse and a gap had to be made up very, very quickly. And we know and we're still paying the, the, the price in our country uh, for that. Mm. But we've collected €5 billion Euro more last year than we spent on our hospital on our schools on social welfare I don't necessarily accept the analysis of the Department of Finance and Things, w- 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 you know, that, that, that the corporation tax take, that you know, the significant as a significant part of that, mm. as they say, uh, is it, actually once off. And um, you know, that being said, we do need to be responsible. For example, Michael, I wouldn't mm. have introduced if I was minister for finance the kind of tax cuts that this government introduced uh, that are coming into effect now this week because they disproportionately benefit uh, the top forty okay. percent of earners.
4: And, and that um, might offset so the cost of increasing of welfare. I mean, if you were so to do that, and their choices, their political choices but if right. you if you do assume for a, a minute uh, that it is a, a once-off windfall that this five billion uh may or may not be here next year so you won't rely on it Uh, what would you do with it Uh, because you can't commit to ongoing spending if you agree with that in principle so would you take it would you take it and put it away for uh, the next unforeseen thing that happens as a result of the war or would you take it and build a hospital to stop this nonsense in the hospitals uh, in the emergency departments would you take it and build houses or modular homes or what
5: would you do with it yeah uh, and I think we, we've, we've always made, and it's a social democratic points to make, and this is what social democratic parties who are in power right across the European Union are doing at the moment with resources that they have. They're actually investing in the future. They're investing in public housing, they're investing in hospital beds, they're investing in universities, they're investing in schools, because when you've got this kind of money, spending it on, on, on the capital side, Rather than uh, disproportionately spending, you know, a high proportion of money on day-to-day spending is an investment in the future. And we know that there's been significant underinvestments, and um, partially because we didn't have the money a number of years ago. But even between 2016 and 2020, the state has been spending less as a proportion of our income and our wealth uh, compared to other rich countries. Uh, uh, and, and that's 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 a very significant point to make. General levels of government investment have been low in this country from 2016 to 2020. And what governments are saying now. Michael, is that they're only going to be spending and the way they're going to approach investment over the next period of time for the lifetime of this government is a maximum of 5% year on year increase every year, regardless of, of how well the country is doing they put that in the context of of, of many years of under investing because of the incapacity of the state to invest because the state didn't have resources those chickens are coming home to roost in the sense that you know we have a massive housing issue now we know we need an additional at least 2,000 hospital beds there actually hasn't been a new hospital built in ireland in i don't know 30 40 years
4: i think they're saying um, 5,000 at a minimum
5: uh, uh, yeah, well, two thousand over the next two, two years, and, and it's very going to be very, very difficult to find the staff. The workforce planning simply isn't being done. at seen, eleven, the HSE, and with the Minister for Health to actually address our healthcare needs. The population of Ireland has grown. Uh, by about a million in the last 20 years and, and the country simply hasn't faced those facts. So what you do with those kinds of resources is actually invest on a once-off basis to try and future-proof the country to deal with our housing issue, to try and deal with our schools issue, our universities, uh, our, our hospitals and so on. That's one way that we can actually invest. And when we talk about actually these once-off you know, tax uh, windfalls, yes, by all means, the, the, a portion of that should be uh, kept for you know, uh, uh, mm. difficulties that we may face in, into the future. Uh, but I don't believe that um, the the windfall, as it were, is as large as the Department of Finance is suggesting. The Department of Finance, uh, are, <laughs> their reputation of forecasting has taken a battering uh, in recent years. And it's a good problem to mm. have that we've got these kinds of um, you know excess taxes. Now, there is a vulnerability in that only 10, about 10 firms are responsible for half of these corporation tax changes. We have these new OECD changes that are being made. There's going to be a 15% corporation tax rate over the next period of time. So when we balance all of that out, I don't believe that the picture is as vulnerable as the Department of Finance would paint.
4: Okay. You make strong points. You're very critical of government. Uh, You fight your corner vigorously. And I suppose that's the cut and thrust of politics Uh, and I'm sure you'd expect the same type of strong arguments to come from those in government and vice versa when those roles reverse if uh, they do reverse and uh, the reason I I say that and put it that way is I want to mention an assault that happened on Wednesday evening on Anne Rabbit and uh, Kieran Cannon we've all been hearing about this it's been an uh, appalling uh, thing uh, to happen to politicians and says uh, an awful lot about uh, the discourse uh, that takes place when political issues are being discussed in this country and how I think to a large degree people's minds are being fed by social media and uh, people have lost respect uh, for each other. Uh, And whilst uh, you're no stranger to heated debate here or elsewhere for that matter and uh, I'm sure people listening to the debate this morning will say we're talking a lot of crap at least we're not throwing crap at each other uh, and hopefully that will never be the case uh, it, it was an outrageous thing that happened in Galway a couple of nights ago uh, but I must say that I'm very taken aback by one newspaper this morning who spoke to the offender the person who threw the cow dung at Ann Rabbit and Kieran Cannon and heard his justification, if you like. Uh, is there a risk here that media will legitimise that type of behaviour?
5: Yeah, and I think that, look, I, I think there's, a, there's a, a, a kind of a balance to be struck, um, even though this whole debate shouldn't be about balance. I mean, there, there's no equivalence here. You know, our societies should just agree that what that man did uh, the other night in Galway was wrong, uh, plain and simple. no justification for End of story. Uh, You know, anybody, Michael, who would sit at home, decide they're going to a a meeting uh, to make a protest about something which they're entitled to do and should do. And I would encourage it all the time. It's good for our democracy that people attend meetings, that they express their view. But the idea that somebody in a premeditated fashion would um, fill two bags with excrement uh, with the intention uh, it seems, of bringing it to a meeting to uh, use it as a projectile to attack uh, to elected public representatives, to public represent- representatives who are chosen by that community to represent them is it, it, absolutely extraordinary and really is a new low. Now it, it is at the same time as well, and, and ex- this is the, an exception, this doesn't happen all of the time. Yes, there has been a coarsening of political debate um, and what might stand for political debate these days and social media um is is responsible in, in my view to a large degree in the coarsening of of that debate and and not just the lack of respect. Disrespect for lack of respect for everybody, Michael. But put, I think that you hit the nail on the head a couple of minutes ago when you were saying, you know, people generally uh, have, have less respect for one another. I mean, I'm not talking about the relationship here between politicians and, and the public and the public and politicians. I'm saying people in general. People feel they can say whatever they want now with absolute impunity, and, and that should never, ever uh, be the case. But the idea that somebody would in a premeditated fashion fill two bags of extra from bring it to a meeting uh, with the intention of hurling it at two individuals, regardless of who they are, is just completely um, unacceptable. I saw the piece in, in the Irish Independent today. Mm. Do, you, do you think the I individual know, actually, should... I, take, I take a different view, Mike, Michael, I take a okay, different view. Okay. And, and, and I looked at it, I, I read it a couple of times, and I, thought, mm. okay, I, I think the objective here may have been actually to expose this individual uh, as, uh, 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 you know, clearly the guy... Couldn't wait to get off the phone. He was contacted by, obviously, one or, or two of the journalists whose byline, uh, the respected journalists, good journalists, mm. who, who um, worked with the Irish Independent. He was contacted by them. He was asked a series of questions. And I think in some ways they did society a service because they exposed this guy. He clearly doesn't have the stomach to make his case in public, he seems to me to be quite embarrassed about what it is he's doing because he can't justify what he did. And um, He couldn't wait to get off the phone when he was contacted by the journalist. He didn't have an explanation um, beyond uh, the, 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 the few words that he, he seemed to exchange uh, with them. He couldn't wait to hang up the phone. So he didn't have the stomach for the fight, didn't have the stomach for the arguments, didn't have the stomach to make his case. He, he should, simply shouldn't have Done what it, what it, what he did, and the thing about it is, though, there is no balance. There's no two sides to this debate. It's just plain wrong.
4: Mm. I, I think that's the point. Do we need to hear from this individual?
5: Uh, I, I can understand what, why why we have done. I think the next step was always going to be to try and contact them, uh, and I think. Uh, uh, Michael, I'll take maybe a nuanced view on this and say that I think the journalists who contacted him actually ended up doing uh, society a bit of a service here because they exposed this guy as not being able to actually back up his arguments. He didn't have the stomach to actually, you know, continue on with the uh, discussion to make his case. And I think he's been exposed...
4: Okay, and I, I can see from the messages coming in that the vast majority of people uh, don't want that type of behaviour, that they want people to be respectful of each other. Uh, and that seems to be the thrust of what people are, are saying. Uh, and I'm sure that there'll be a small minority who'll be shouting very loudly on the internet otherwise, which is always the case. We we'll leave it there for the moment, though. Thank you indeed for joining us on the programme today. That's the Labour Party spokesperson on finance, Jed Nash, who's a TD for Louth and Eastmeath.
6: Michael, Michael Reed. LMFM.
4: Well, it's a year on since uh, the introduction of minimum unit alcohol pricing. Let's speak uh, to Jennifer Flynn, Communications uh, Director with Drink Aware. Very good morning to you, Jennifer, and thank you indeed for joining us on uh, the programme this morning. The idea was uh, that alcohol would become more expensive, that the very cheap alcohol that is wouldn't be available to people anymore, that that would become more expensive, and as a result, people would change their habits. Do you think? A year on, that people are drinking more responsibly?
7: Well, that's very hard to say based on the uh, policy of minimum unit pricing because we don't actually have any research in Ireland after a year to indicate if the policy has achieved its stated aims, which is to increase the price of very strong alcohol. So, just for your listeners to explain a little bit about what minimum unit pricing is. It's different to a tax as it sets a minimum price that alcohol can be sold at mm. based on how strong the product is.
4: Well, it's a so tax it is, on all alcohol. Uh, it's not on all, very strong alcohol.
7: Oh, no, it's a minimum price, so it's not no. a tax. It's a minimum price that the alcohol is set at.
4: Yeah, but on, on all 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 alcohol.
7: All alcohol products, but it's yeah. based on the strength of it. So what yeah. it is is that the you cannot sell... Say one standard drink of alcohol in Ireland for less than a euro. So the exactly. price that it was set yeah. at was 10 cents per gram of
4: alcohol. Mm. So, but you, but I mean, when you put it, when you talk about strong alcohol, it sounds like you're talking about rocket fuel. Uh, you're talking about a, a can of beer has uh, uh, to be 170 or something, isn't it? Yes,
7: exactly. Where, where, so where, whereas people used to
4: enjoy buying it for a euro
7: but it's all based on the strength of the alcohol in
4: the product. Oh, I know, so yeah. But it's as far as people are concerned, it's all based on the the price that they're paying, whereas they used to pay a euro, they're now paying 170 for a can.
7: Yeah, and the aim of it is to reduce the sale of strong alcohol at very cheap prices. So we used to see promotions of strong strength alcohol like a can of quite beer low prices. Well you see a can of beer is often seen as not being, you know, high in alcohol quantity, but one can of beer generally has two standard drinks in it. So that's why it's about one seventy to two euro for a can of beer. Mm. So it is all based on the strength of the product. And um, so So the idea you know, is
4: have- to stop people from drinking very strong cans of beer. Is that what you're saying?
7: No it's to prevent, the, really, the aim of it when it was first introduced, a lot of people were talking about kind of multiple things it could achieve. But the aim of this policy is to reduce the heaviest of drinkers from drinking really, really strong alcohol. That is the aim, and to reduce the cost on. To public stop them health.
4: from drinking really strong alcohol, like a can of beer.
7: Well, you see, a can of beer is—it's all based on how strong the alcohol is. Yeah, so well, so it's, it's
4: usually around four percent, four point one percent, or a bottle of wine
7: a bottle of wine yes yeah, so around 7.40 for a 12% bottle of wine is yeah. the minimum price that's set on it so if people do want to look at what the minimum unit price mm. for a product should be they can go onto our website we and there's we a but, but drink pe- calculator pe- and but people know
4: people know what the cost of a bottle of wine is or the cost the cost of a, a can of beer and they know that it used to, what it used to be that they could have got the same bottle of wine for a, a fiver or the same can of beer for a, a euro uh, now because they've gone up in price do you think people are drinking less and that they're happy and feeling better that that's the case
7: well we don't have research in Ireland but there is research from Scotland that we can look at that would probably mm. be our closest comparison and, that, so that, says was, and in- that says
4: it was an abject failure
7: well there's different research so when you're looking at the research it's important to look at the policy in terms of its day to day well the research the from research the public health
4: research by public health scotland uh, following a study by university of sheffield and the university of newcastle in australia and figure eight consultancy services said it was an abject failure
7: well what we have to do is we don't know if it's been a failure because we have to wait for the research to come in here there are going to be unintended negative consequences from prices increasing but there also are the benefits on the health system and the public health of people I know so but Jennifer have to in look fairness, at it in the
4: I know but Jennifer you said to, uh, you, you you said we should look at the research from Scotland and what that found was that people were cutting back on food and heating uh, in order to be able to afford to drink.
7: Well, there's other research in Scotland that shows that there was a reduction amongst the heaviest drinkers and that at 6.2% alcohol consumption did reduce and this was mostly seen around heavier drinkers. And, you know, there were different concerns around cross-border shopping since Northern Ireland haven't increased the measure again. And when you look at Scottish research um, in that case, that they saw a very moderate increase in cross-border shopping as well.
4: Uh, The research I referred to said that the heaviest of drinkers drink just as much as they used to drink, but what they're doing is they're eating less or spending less on food, or they're not turning on the heat or they're saving money somewhere else to be able to afford this new expensive alcohol. Uh, The rich alcoholics obviously uh, are continuing to drink as much as they used to, so it's a tax on poor alcoholics uh, and it's a penalty then on people who can't afford to drink moderately, is it not?
7: it's very hard to say because we don't have the research here. And we do know that price increases will impact the lower income households more so than the higher income households. But the aim is to reduce alcohol-related harm. Mm. So we do need to look at it from a public health uh, policy measure rather than from an economic...
4: Would it not have been measures. better to have done the research before bringing in uh, tax that people said was going to make it possible to be an alcoholic if you're rich uh, and is going to have an adverse effect on you if you're a poor alcoholic and it's going to impact on low earners uh, uh, who uh, drink moderately?
7: Well, it is one of the World Health Organization's most kind of, it's called their best buys, so their policies that they say governments should introduce to um, reduce alcohol-related harms, And they include taxation and restrictions on advertising. So it's important as well to look at minimum unit pricing in terms of the Public Health Alcohol Act of 2018. So that's what minimum unit pricing is part of. So mm-hmm. with the suite of measures around advertising, people will have seen the uh, barriers in retail outlets and restrictions on sponsorship. So it's part of a, a, you know, a much wider implementation of that Public
4: Health Alcohol um, Act. People so were we will con- have
7: to wait and see.
4: Mm, people were concerned uh, as well that if alcohol went up in price but cocaine didn't go up in price and uh, a bag of weed wasn't any more expensive uh, and if you were somebody who drinks irresponsibly and takes drugs and there's many people like that, that maybe you wouldn't drink as less but maybe you'd end up using more cocaine or whatever it is.
7: Yeah, th- that was one of the concerns that was raised around minimum unit pricing, that it could lead to an increase in illegal drug use. But this hasn't been seen in any significant way in Scotland to date. So again, it's one of those things where there, there could possibly be many unintended negative consequences from increasing the prices. But we do need to wait and see what the potential benefits are and, you know, counter them against each other.
4: Okay. Okay. Um... If people are drinking less uh, and they believe they're moderate drinkers and they're upset about this, what do you have to say to them, Jennifer?
7: Well, you know, at Drink Aware, we don't seek to influence policy. We don't seek to influence legislative change. What we want to do is support the public with information, facts, advice and tips. So, you know, we created the minimum unit price or explainer page on our website because there was such a huge demand from the public to understand the measures and we did see a huge demand when the measure was first introduced that it was going to be enacted last year in May. So we created the page. We want to give people clear information so that they can make informed decisions and we do know that legislative progress is being made through the public health alcohol act and people um want to understand those measures so we believe that they need to be supported with education information and awareness as well
4: all right well i'm sure people will let us know how they feel but thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning that's uh, jennifer flynn who's a communications director with Drinkaware.
6: Michael,
4: Michael Reed Reid on LMFM. Tom uh, in Dope I think Tom is in Dope it's how it's signed anyway. He sends us a WhatsApp mass- message and he says, So it's okay now for Jed to discuss the dung man in his absence. Uh, New low, says Tom in Dopeland. I I think uh, it is all right to talk about him in his absence. Uh, I certainly wouldn't have the man on the programme because that was an assault on two politicians, uh, which has upset an awful lot of us, Tom, uh, I think some people probably won't be surprised if you're in dope land, if you think uh, that the man should be on the programme, to be honest with you, because it, it really was a new low. And many of us don't want to see that repeated. Uh, and that was why I was asking you, Jed Nash, uh, about it. We didn't talk about it as such on the programme yesterday because it shouldn't, I mean you don't talk about fellas going up and punching people in the face, it's a matter for the guards to do that, to look after that you'll always get thuggery of all sorts and this was just a, another example of thuggery uh, but uh, he was asked about it by the Irish Independent, uh, Anne Rabbit and Kieran Cannon have been talking about it uh, and indeed others, so that's uh, why we were talking about it today we might hear from uh, Anne Rabbit a little bit later on in the programme uh, but yeah, I, I think uh, it, it, it's right to talk about it in its absence It certainly wouldn't be right for him to be present uh, on any... Uh, public forum. Uh, now, let's talk about drink. Uh, the whole increase is a joke, says one of our listeners. The heavy drinking is going on, just as it was. It's just the same. more robberies than homeless because of it. The poor get poorer. Can't believe that there hasn't been a survey done in Ireland. I suppose a survey would cost a few million euros, says uh, our caller. Thanks for your text to the programme. Uh, another text on that uh, from uh, somebody who says, uh, that lady from drinkerware hasn't got a clue. Uh, about what she's talking about. As Michael said, it's been an abject failure everywhere else. Paddy Duffy, talking a- about uh, that nonsense going over uh, on over in the US, he says, we now have the equivalent of the DUP in Congress in Washington, the loony right wing. Thanks, Paddy. I'm not sure if uh, the Republicans or the DUP would be Insulted or delighted to hear such a comment, but that's uh, an interesting comment. As always, Paddy, thanks for making it on the program. Fred says the HSE should call in retired nurses, like they did during COVID, put all of the agency staff onto extra hours, cancel all day procedures in the Louth Hospital, and use them as day wards. As uh, then the uh, could be used uh, a short stay for the lured three to four days, move them up to Dundalk and elderly patients. Uh, then um, he says uh, they need care and holding up instead of holding up a bed in the Lourdes uh, they could get cared for in Dundalk because uh, they don't want them in nursing homes but they can't agree who'll look after them Uh, give the next of kin an ultimatum Uh, make up your mind within an hour's deadline nursing home or home uh, and that their relation will be sent to them the same day while nursing home procedure is being processed this is uh, the problem uh, and uh, relatives can't agree they call their bluff they should call bluff, uh, and at least 35% of hospital beds will be freed up. Thank you, Fred. It's a shocking thing to think that people won't take people home if uh, that's what you're saying, Fred, and I I think it is. And thank you indeed uh, for your message. Uh, A lot of good suggestions in that, Fred. Uh, Maybe an idea to save your text and send it to us next January. 'cause I've a feeling we'll be talking about hospital overcrowding again in January of twenty twenty four. Anyway, if you'd like to make comment on the program today, our telephone number is O four one nine eight three two thousand. You can text or WhatsApp O eight six one eight hundred six five eight or you can email Michael at LMFM.ie. <laughs>
6: Michael, Michael Reed Reid on LMFM. On
4: LMFM. Now we've been overrun with uh, messages, texts and WhatsApps and emails and phone calls from people this week. And some messages that we didn't come to yesterday, we said we'd make time for on the programme today. We were speaking with uh, the of Mead County Council yesterday uh, about social housing and how you may be eligible uh, to qualify for social housing if you're earning €40,000 or less All you have to do is apply. It won't happen today or tomorrow, but in time... It will happen. Uh, We'd a WhatsApp message from somebody who says, "No wonder there's a housing crisis. The way that they're dishing out social housing sounds like all I should be doing is making sure I qualify for a free house." Eighteen years of age, he said. Says our caller. Well, that's the way it is, and it's the same rules for everybody. If you're eighteen or over, you can put your name on the housing waiting list, Uh, and if you're earning forty thousand in Meath, thirty-five thousand in Louth, uh, well, you'll go on the list, and it doesn't matter what. What you're earning in five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten years from now when perhaps something will become available to you at uh, the same. Uh criteria uh, applies uh, and it uh, uh, refers back to the time that you made the application so you will still qualify. Uh, Paddy was in touch saying uh, with all of the stuff going on in the hospitals uh, that the media should force an election somehow. I'm not sure how we could do that Paddy. Uh, somebody else in touch with us because we were speaking to Grace about trying to get a dentist no dentist available to medical card patients uh, and indeed then how impossible it is to get to see a dentist even when you go to pay for one let alone a GP and we would quite an extensive conversation on the program about that yesterday and somebody said, I'm really angry here listening to all of this. What about a person who's on whose income is borderline uh, and you don't have a medical card and you can't afford to go to the dentist. There's a lot of people out there like that. Thank you indeed. I think that's uh, true and it's always uh, the problem uh, with cut-off points uh, and these thresholds uh, for qualifying and not qualifying. Uh, we had a ca- caller in Kells uh, who says, my dentist didn't tell me that they'd stop seeing medical card holders. I-, I rang over 40 dentists on the 109 bus route from Dublin to Cabin because I don't have a card. Uh, I did get a, a lovely lady dentist in Town eventually, but it was that difficult. Betty Daly said, Michael, we've gone like America. We've loads of drug barons, thousands of homeless. And as for the hospitals, well, if you can't pay, stay away. And Stephen Donnelly, she says, is a caricature of a health minister. Thanks, Betty, for that. Margaret said, with things so bad in our hospitals, why did the government allow the HSE to make it worse by bypassing Our ladies' Hospital in Navan to bring patients to the already overcrowded hospitals, to languish for days or hours on trolleys or chairs, listening to Damien English on the programme repeat the mantra that's been said for years? is a disgrace when the new hospital was promised by Fine Gael and it hasn't been built. Talk won't save lives. How many people have to die before government really wakes up? Our HSE was, or our bigger partner, our health service, was far better when we had the health boards. Uh, there's far too many at the top on big pay, and not enough at the bottom where the real work is being done and where lives are saved. Thanks, Margaret. Interesting comment, Margaret, because... A lot of comparisons have been made uh, to University Hospital in Limerick. Uh, and when uh, situations uh, like uh, the one in Navin uh, occurred, uh, more patients were sent there. That, in Limerick, uh, one of the hospitals uh, that stopped seeing emergency department patients was in Ennis. And now uh, they're reversing that decision to some degree uh, on... Uh, temporary basis at least uh, that some patients now will be taken to Ennis whereas before there was this protocol that they'd all be taken to Limerick but they're now saying there's too many patients coming to Limerick so maybe we should change our mind and send them back to Ennis. Anyway it throws a spanner in the work I think in terms of the arguments uh, for uh, downgrading the hospital in Navan. Now we were talking uh, about uh, this assault on Minister Anne Rabbit and Kieran Cannon, uh, who were speaking at a a public event in Galway, and were assaulted by a man who threw bags of cow dung at them. Uh, The minister has been speaking to Galway Bay FM. Let's hear what she had to say.
8: And I suppose, really, when you have a bag of, uh, 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 no matter how big or small it is, of manure flung at you, (laughs) right into your torso, um, it doesn't leave you uh, feeling great whatsoever. And I suppose, really, I was very disappointed that that incident happened. I was uh, disappointed that it possibly wasn't. Um, perhaps, um, I, I know it was said, like, keep it respectful, but at the end of the day, like, whatever way you look at it, um, a person at a meeting last night, it's also two public um, represent, government representatives representing their constituents who were there in good faith and um, the person wasn't removed from the room the person continued in the room um, for the rest of the evening needless to say I stayed till I spoke and to be very fair to, to, to one of the organisers asked me earlier on did I wish to speak I actually wasn't in a position to be able to speak To be quite honest with you and um, the legs were taken right out from under me as far as I was concerned and um, I, I was I actually had dry mouth I wasn't able to put words together at that point um, yeah, I was able to tweet because I felt I needed to um, ventilate my anger of what was actually unfolding personally to me and how I felt that, um, yeah, I just didn't feel good about it, kid,
4: And it was that...
2: up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com.
4: Tweet uh, that the minister published uh, that made this story public and has caused uh, all of this upset uh, as a result. Anne Finnegan was speaking to Galway Bay FM and she told Keith Finnegan that she believes that this is a matter for the Gardaí.
8: It had to be reported. Um... Because that person was incredibly angry, he was very, very annoyed with myself and Kieran. I know I also did tell Kieran I had put up a tweet. I didn't put Kieran's name on it because it—I it, it, didn't want to. Um, of where would you put this? Like it was how I felt. I didn't want to bring Kieran into to my tale of woe at that point in time. Mm. And I just—I I just felt very let down. Okay, and I think we hit a new low that it was carry on regardless. Uh, um, without uh, keeping it respectful, absolutely. But at the same time, um, there was only two people last night that got um, manure flung at them. And that was myself and from Curtin Cannon. And we can't allow public representatives um, no matter who they are for uh, anybody in civil society attending a meeting to actually be treated like that. We have to be respectful regardless.
4: That mm. really is unbelievable. <laughs> The idea of anybody throwing cow dung at anybody else is that what it's come to is that the the way we debate things politically in this country, in this day and age.
8: All I'm saying is that I'm looking at this from the eye of where politics has gone to a new law and why I can't condone that behaviour. Because we're trying to encourage more women into politics. We're trying to encourage more debate within civil society. And what we end up doing is we end up muting it because people don't want to put their same forward.
4: Okay, so sitting there with a cow dung on her torso, as she put it herself, uh, the minister then decided to, to tweet what happened to her, uh, and uh, as mentioned earlier on, that's uh, how this became public.
8: There was a tweet put out, and I, an actual fact, if you read my tweet, I didn't say where I was at, no, what location I was in, what meeting I was attending. It is actually the fact that as public representatives, we are getting, the, 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 every day I'm amazed with how low we're getting to actually respectful debate. I, res- I only go out to do a day's work, like for anybody who's listening here, I only go out to do a day's work. That's all I do. I get paid well to do my day's work. But I do my day's work to represent my constituents. Not actually to do anything against my constituents, to represent them as best I can. And that's what I was doing last night until I got a bag of manure flung at
4: me. A bag of manure flung at me. (laughs) Doing a day's work. I don't know a government minister that's uh, minister Anne Rabbit she was speaking to Keith Finnegan on Galway Bay FM now uh, I'm not sure uh, if you've any thoughts on that other than what's been said but if uh, you do we'd like to hear from you as always our telephone number is 0419832000 that's 0419832000 you can text or WhatsApp 0861800658 or you can email michael at lmfm.ie. Now, back to the hospitals and some of the comments that have come into us about uh, the overcrowding. Uh, We'd Robin Kane and Navin in touch with us following the interview with uh, Minister Damien English, wondering why the minister was making excuses and doing so time and time again. Same old story, nothing to do with three viruses. He's all talk. How can you come on and, uh, or how come the health minister won't come on and explain all of this? Because he can't answer the questions. End of story. Thank you indeed, uh, Robin. I, I'm not sure if the minister has just decided never to talk to LMFM, but Minister donnelly has been speaking uh, to the media and uh, he's given uh, extensive interviews uh, in relation to the current crisis, uh, to be fair to the minister. Uh, we'd uh, somebody else, Shay Kelleher, saying, God forbid if there was a major accident, what would happen if a major accident occurred given what's already happening, uh, the pressure that's already in the hospitals. Uh, somebody else said Minister Donnelly should spend some time in a, a trolley and left in a hallway and find out what it, it, it feels like. Um, uh, and maybe then things would change. Claire and Mead said, Michael, is there anything right in our country? No room in the hospitals? Our government should be ashamed. The money is there but there's no beds. No trolley. Sick people treated so badly. Talk is cheap. Why exaggerate? For God's sake, wake up. What is being done? Talking, uh, 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 stop talking and do what needs to be done. Our Minister for Health... Should be gone and gone long ago," says Claire. Uh, and thank you indeed uh, for that. And thanks to everybody who's been in touch with us. As I say, our telephone number is zero four one nine eight three two thousand. You can text or WhatsApp zero eight six one eight hundred six five eight, or email Michael at lmfm.ie. We'd love to hear from you. Michael, michael
6: Reed on LMFM.
4: FM. Just a, another WhatsApp message on uh, the cow dung. Uh, somebody else saying uh, that moronic thug that did that to the two politicians should get no recognition for what he he did at all at the same time it's all over social media it's in the papers and it's on the TV it shouldn't be happening we shouldn't be hearing about it we shouldn't uh, be giving it oxygen in fact the person should be prosecuted our caller says thank you indeed uh, for that. Maul says, Michael uh, instead of being horrified at what happened to those TDs it's time You looked at uh, how useless TDs are uh, and how Irish people have been treated. And we feel that uh, we're second-class citizens. The TDs are a joke. Uh, They line their own pockets uh, and so on and so forth. Peter, uh, in touch, uh, uh, he has assaulted a inverted commas. He says something about the TDs being leeches uh, and crybabies and that we live in a banana republic. Good God, Peter, uh, and good God, Maul. I I don't know uh, how you'd feel if somebody threw cow dung at you, uh, but uh, these are just people, uh, regardless of your political opinions, and some people will agree with their opinions and some people won't, uh, but they are people entitled to respect as uh, they go about their working lives and I'm surprised uh, that anybody would think otherwise and I'm surprised that Peter's saying it's a banana republic we should be very proud of the democracy that we live in Uh, and that's why we have uh, the opportunity to discuss things the way we do on programmes like this and elsewhere anyway let's uh, talk about a completely different issue because rural pubs feel that they're under threat let's uh, speak uh, to the CEO of the Vintners Federation of Ireland Paul Clancy who's on uh, the line and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme Paul Uh, this is because of of uh, the deregulation of licensing, uh, which I would have thought would result in more pubs, would it not?
9: Well, look, in general, we welcome the publication of the general scheme of the Sale of Alcohol Bill because, in fairness, the majority of the bill consolidates and streamlines a lot of existing legislation that's been there for over the last 100 years. And its primary focus is developing the nighttime economy. But we have a we have a major issue with one element of it, and it's called extinguishment. And this is a system that allows a new pub to open only when another pub permanently closes. And if the bill proceeds into law, as currently written, then a establishment would be removed. And that would mean that you could potentially have an unlimited number of pubs in the country. Mm. Now, we know that since 2005 to 2021, you know, 21% of pubs have closed and over COVID, another 350 on top of that. So our concern really is that if you have a free-for-all uh, where effectively you can have as many pubs as you want uh, in the marketplace, that it would put those rural pubs that are currently, you know, bouncing back after COVID, uh, the public have been very supportive. And the concern is that they would uh, be put under immense pressure and that they wouldn't survive.
4: Right,
9: And um, that's the concern, really. Right.
4: I, I, and that if you allow for an unlimited amount of pubs, as many as you like, that you might end up actually having less
9: yeah because if you consider that you have a pub that's say open five days a week now because of you know footfall and is trying to rebuild its business case to trying to you know you know uh, to try and survive if you like and and certainly after covid it's been very challenging and businesses did have a very strong christmas which is great but if you put another pub into that particular village the, the footfall won't merit two pubs and the chances are that the new entrant and the existing entrant could both fail, and you can end up with less pubs in the longer term. That's the concern we really have. Right, you'd be, very, f-
4: you'd be very foolish to open up a, a pub uh, beside a pub that's already struggling, would you not?
9: Well, look, we're, we're concerned really that if it's opened up that people may take a punt on this. They may not be familiar with the, the local area. You know, it could be a chain that could come in, and you'd lose that. It would be unsustainable competition, I suppose, really, and you could lose that family-run pub you know, that's owned for generations, that are embedded in the local community. And the new entrant could possibly be less likely to succeed due to that lack of generational expertise. And a lot of pubs in rural, you know, they are um, struggling to survive. And they they may not know the facts of actually what's happening in the area, may not be embedded enough in the community to realise that they shouldn't really open, they could open, and that could end up, you could have two pubs then competing against each other for limited enough football and both wouldn't survive, and that's the last thing we need.
4: Okay. Uh, and that would assume uh, that there'd be a, a lack of loyalty from customers uh, as well, because I'd have I thought that people were very loyal to their local pub.
9: Well, they are, and that's been shown in the footfall that's, you know, come back after the COVID period. I suppose, yes, they are, but there's only a limited amount of footfall that's there in that particular geographical area, and the concern is by putting another pub into that area that you just share that footfall and ultimately... You know that the existing pub that's trying to survive wouldn't be able to survive, and it could clo- potentially close. And when that closes, it's not just the pub itself; it's the, the the you know the fact that it's embedded in the community. And a lot of these pubs, a lot of our members are generational owners. You know, they've been in families for many, many years, and you'd lose that uh, family-run element of the of the business. And we know from Foyle Ireland that this is one of the aspects. And that tourism really mm. like about traveling around the wide Atlantic way or wherever they happen to be on holidays is they love that, that that fabric that is within the Irish pub that family owned fence that is there, and that could potentially be lost here and you know that 's the concern we have again like, as I say, we commend the minister in terms of a lot of things she 's trying to achieve with the bill with the focus on the nighttime economy, but we have a major concern about this element of extinguishment that it could threaten the existing fabric of uh, traditional rural pubs that are currently there.
4: Okay. Are you worried about uh, the value of the licence?
9: No. Look, the value of the licence is an element of it, but in the scheme of things, it's not about the value of the licence here. This is about the, the sustainability of the rural pubs going forward, and our members are very concerned about and we have 3,500 of those, and they're very, very concerned about that. So it's not really about the value of the licence. In fairness, any conversation I've had with members that hasn't been focused on that it has been focused on look I'm trying to build a business here to survive come out of Covid um, I'm open 5 days a week I want to continue to 7 here what mm. I need is more help rather than more unsustainable competition really in, in the geographical area where you're trying to rebuild your business
4: Ok but competition should be healthy should it not?
9: Yeah look we've no problem with competition um, really like, the 10,000 trading licences out there uh, currently at the minute and we're in competition with, with other pubs and we're in competition with restaurants and so on so we're not concerned about the competition. Is that unfair competition or unsustainable competition, really, I suppose, would be the right way of putting it, where, where you know, there, there just isn't that business there for two to survive. And ultimately, you're putting the initial, the existing one, at risk of failure. And that's the concern we have.
4: Mm, but surely there's opportunities in the market uh, when you consider there's about, there's about 2,000 fewer pubs now than would have been the case a couple of years ago.
9: Yeah, and look, you know, uh, demographics have changed that. You know, change in consumer habits have have caused that number to reduce. But we are getting back to where it is beginning to flatten. We're not losing uh, as many pubs as we did before Mm. over that period. And what we want to try and do is put them on a sustainable footing because we believe that this is more than just bricks and mortar. This is about the fabric of the uh, tourism offer that we have, what people really want. And in fairness, the, the public have supported so well after covid um, they really want to have that embedded in their community and putting that at risk is our concern and our members' concern. And we don't believe that this element of the bill will help rural pubs at all. In fact, we found, we feel it will be counterproductive. Hmm. And we have said this to the minister and we're hoping that you will take it on board in, in terms of uh, the
4: reviews that are coming up. Okay. Uh, would it be in the interest of the consumer, of the customer, uh, in some cases, uh, to introduce competition, uh, because I think there is a, an argument that some licences are, are are not being utilised to the extent that they should be.
9: Well, look, our, our, our members and the vast majority are trying to make it as competitive as it possibly can their offer because they realise their you know their local businesses and local communities, and they realise that if they don't have a competitive offer, they won't have people coming across the threshold. So, you know, they have to remain competitive as they possibly can, and that's what they've been doing, and, you know, they have absorbed a lot of costs, obviously, in the recent bits of the energy costs and so on, mm. to try and maintain that so they can keep people coming in. So they're always looking at how they ways of being more attractive and being more competitive, really, to encourage people to come in. Mm. So I don't yeah. see that as a, as a particular issue. Yeah,
4: I'm not sure that they always are, though, are they? I mean, I think some people are, are sitting comfortably uh, on uh, their assets and aren't particularly interested in and I'd say it's a very rare thing but I, I certainly can think of uh, some uh, small areas uh, some small villages let's say where there's a, a pub, uh, a population uh, that would like to go to the pub uh, but it's not attractive uh, to them uh, they go in, if there's anybody in it there might be one or two fellas at the bar uh, if a, a new bar was to open up in that village uh, and uh, maybe put on food, entertainment uh, and some of the things that people are, are looking for uh, well then uh, there'll be somewhere for them to go locally.
9: Look, there may be, there may be cases of that and, and somebody who is running a business that way won't survive. So ultimately that business will ultimately under the current uh, way like, I can
4: think of one area where it's been like that for years.
9: Yeah, well look, I mean, there are going to be instances of hmm. that, Michael, in, in the country for sure, but on a general scheme, over 3,500 members that we have, 6,000 publicans in the country you know, the general case is that publicans are doing their damnedest to try and encourage people to come in to survive um, and to try and make as much money as they can so they can reinvest in their business and re-innovate um, their business to encourage people to come in. So I, I think in the general scheme of things, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't fully agree with that. There may be instances of that in, in particular. Yeah, and, and, I,
4: and I'm not suggesting that it's widespread and anything other than instances, but, I, I mean, there is that other side of it, uh, as rare as it may be.
9: Yeah, look, I t- a point taken, but I suppose the concern is that, you know, with this uh, this issue of extinguishment, you're really putting a vast majority of, of rural pubs at risk. So what you might gain in, in number will be lost in the effect that this possibly could have on the 3,500 members that we have.
4: Mm. OK. Um, do you uh, believe uh, that uh, the pub industry is... Uh, An industry that needs to reinvent itself anyway, Uh, and uh, perhaps the logic behind uh, this is uh, to give it a a good shake-up.
9: Well, look, I mean, you know, let's be honest about it. With with the uh, with COVID and the and the chance that publicans have had, they have really been innovative in terms of how they've come back, Um, and they will continue to be because they do realise if you're not innovative, um, you won't survive. So I think that, you know, from my, my speaking with members and looking at what they're actually doing and trying to do to encourage people back, I, I, I definitely believe that the day of the public where people are just walking in and strolling in, those days are gone. And our surveys would show that, you know, it's the pubs that are really focused on mm-hmm. running events that are trying to... Uh, encourage people into their pub, they're the ones that are going to survive in the future.
4: Mm. Uh, and do you think that people are, or that there's uh, business people who are, are queuing up looking for the opportunity to get a, a licence to open a, a pub and I'm thinking of the 2,000 pubs that closed uh, and, you know, why have they not been replaced if that's the case?
9: Well, I think the demographics have had a lot to do with this and changing consumer habits. Um, I think that has been a large, the urbanisation, if you like, of the population. You know, people leaving the country as well mm-hmm. over that period. But I do believe... Well, but, I mean, we're going back to
4: 2005, working. aren't we? And we've seen uh, yeah. a huge increase in the population since then.
9: Yeah, and look, you know, some a lot of population have left as well and they have gone to the urbanisation. Um, that, that's a fact as well. But I do think with hybrid working, I think there is an opportunity there. People are coming home, they're working from home more, and they do want to have their local pub and their community to call to. And that's the concern we have, is that that, that pub that's integrated in the community could be put at risk here and that uh, potentially you could have no future. And that's the last thing we want. And I think I believe that's the last thing the Minister wants as well.
4: Okay. Uh, better January this year than last year?
9: I hope so. Um, feedback has been very good in terms of December. Uh, you know, there was a great bounce back. There was great pent-up demand. But there is a concern in the first quarter, um, you know, with the inflation rates and so on and disposable income. Uh, we're keeping a very watchful eye on us. Um, yeah, but look, uh, we, we keep our fingers crossed that we'll have a strong January.
4: OK, well, look, thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme this morning. That's uh, Paul Clancy, who's the CEO of the VFI, the Fitness Federation of Ireland. Now, let me bring you some more of the comments coming to us. Uh, David in touch with us. He tells us he was at the drive through at McDonald's the other day and he saw a, a man in his 60s rummaging in the bins for food. He went and he bought him some food and the man devoured it. And David says it was heartbreaking. People really need to speak up and hold the government accountable. Something needs to be done about all of the homeless people in this country really is awful. Thanks David uh, for sharing that with us. Uh, Well worth I know we all see it all the time but well worth uh, sharing it with us I think. Bernie in touch with us as well and Bernie says it's absolutely disgusting what happened to those two public representatives. The meeting should have been cancelled and the guards should have been called. The public voted for those TDs and they were just doing a day's work. It's terrible to think that this could happen anywhere. The person responsible should be prosecuted. Thank you indeed uh, for your call as well this morning, Bernie. And remember, if you would like to make comment on the programme, like Bernie or David, we'd love to hear from you. Our telephone number is 041 983 2000. That's 041 983 2000 if you want to... Ring us the old-fashioned way on the dog and bone. Uh, If you want to let your fingers do the talking, you can text us or WhatsApp us on 086-1800-658. That's 086-1800-658. And we'd love to hear from you if you want to email us, michael at lmfm.ie.
6: Michael Reed, Reed
4: on LMFM. We were talking on the program yesterday, and indeed uh, the day before, and indeed last year, and the year before, uh, about how in 2006 uh, the Minister for Health of the day, Mary Harney, said that the bottom line is that no one, particularly no older person, should sleep overnight on a, a trolley in a corridor. Uh, this was at a time where there were 495 people uh, on trolleys. In A&Ds, as they were called in the country at the time, uh, the Minister said that people will need to be admitted, who need to be admitted will have beds because the resources were going to be put into it, they'll have beds, not trolleys, and the basics for human dignity because anything less than that is not acceptable to the public, not acceptable to me, uh, not acceptable to the HSE. Not acceptable is a turn of phrase we've been hearing quite a, a lot uh, this week and last year and the year before in the last 24 years uh, we heard Minister Damien English on the programme say yes say it's not acceptable what's happening in the hospitals, we heard the Taoiseach Leo vratker say it's not acceptable what's happening in the hospitals, uh, we heard uh, the Minister for Health Stephen Donnelly say it's not acceptable what's happening in the hospitals uh, and it's interesting uh, as well because uh, this doesn't just go back uh, the almost 20 years to when Mary Harney was uh, the Minister for Health. In fact, there's an historian writing about it in the Irish Times today, Dermot Ferreter, who says any future museum devoted to our recent history will surely have to include a display of a hospital trolley. A quarter century where the annual January hospital crisis has steadily worsened. Uh, and he begins his article in the Irish Times today by going back to the Fine Gael Ordesh in 1994 uh, and John Bruton's comments as uh, the leader of uh, that party then on hospital overcrowding. Now there's some of you who will not be at all surprised by that but of course the whole thing uh, that we're told every year and we've been told every year since 1994 is that this is not acceptable. It's not good
3: enough. It's not what we want. It's not what the staff try every day to make sure it doesn't happen and what um, we ask the patients to do to accept often our apologies, and that's, you know, and we seek to make the patients as comfortable as possible, okay? Now, the key issue obviously is, it, it is sickest patient first, so we are trying to get to the, the sickest patients, and other patients will, will, will wait longer. Now, there are patients waiting for admission, uh, you can see them if you visit hospitals and 80 departments, as we have been, and you have to have a very hard heart not to feel kind of a sense of loss at looking at some of that. So, so we know that's not it's good for the patients. It's not what the staff are trying to do. And at the moment, the best we can do is ask people to bear with us. And for those that can consider other options, to, to think about options. Put
4: it in the but it's not what anybody wants and it's, it's not used acceptable by anyone. in right, That's the uh, interim CEO of uh, the HSE adding his name to the list of uh, people who say the situation in the hospitals is not acceptable. You're listening uh, to the comments there of Stephen Mulvaney. Let's speak to Maurice Sheehan who's industrial relations officer with the Irish Nurses and Midwives Organisation, the INMO and uh, a very good morning to you Morris, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme. Uh, It's particularly bad this year, worst ever uh, uh, on record, Uh, but it's your members on the front line, uh, somewhat uh, accustomed to to this annual uh, event. Uh, What's the morale like amongst nurses? The
10: the morale is that they are actually demoralised because it's not simply this particular episode, but there's been an accumulation of episodes through COVID, through overcrowding, etc., cetera, wh- wh- where they've become exhausted. And that has an accumulative effect on their motivation and so on. And we know that that actually impacts on uh, nurses, uh, who some of who just decide to leave the profession or decide to practise the profession in other countries.
4: Right, and that is one of the problems that we're being told about, is getting staffing in general and that no matter how many hospital beds or hospitals with hospital beds are opened, it's very difficult to staff them.
10: Yeah, that's, that's, that's correct. We know it was understaffing. In fact, back in October... Uh, this the, the scenario scenario we have at the moment was predicted. There was a winter plan put in, and we called uh, uh, on, on the HSE for extra staffing. Now there there is a problem. You can't you can't just uh, wave a wand and get nurses overnight. But this problem has been ongoing for so long uh, that the, the the people responsible, who be the, the HSE, successive ministers for health and successive governments. Surely, must be extremely embarrassed uh, about what's happening at the moment. Mm. I think I did hear on the clip you played there, even Movani apologising uh, to people what's been happening.
4: Mm, okay, we're getting some <laughs> interference on the line uh, there, Morris. uh I'm not sure if it's at your end or, or our end. Uh, maybe we'll hear a little bit more from Stephen Mulvaney and uh, try to work that out uh, because uh, as bad as it is, and it's never been as bad because we've had record numbers, a uh, thousand people almost uh, on trolleys this week, uh, the interim CEO of the HSE says it probably will get worse than that before it gets better.
3: We want to be the harbors of doing but we need. At this stage, we can't tell until we see the peak of the flu and it hasn't, we've no data that hasn't peak yet, it is possible that we will see higher numbers. What we're trying to do with all our efforts is to avoid, either avoid that happening or to manage it as safely we can, is it if it does happen. But, uh, but sitting here today, I can't tell you we won't get to that because so far uh, the, the actual numbers are aligned to or worse than our most pessimistic models. So it, it's, it's a possibility, I'm not saying it's a probability, but it's
4: certainly possible. Possibly, not probably, but possibly, uh, will get worse than uh, the almost 1,000 people on trolleys. Uh, let me take you back, Boris. Uh, thanks for bearing with us. I, I think we've uh, cleared up uh, that problem on the line. Let me take you back, Boris, uh, to 2005, uh, when the INMO started a, a campaign called Enough is Enough. Uh, and the reason I do this is to put it into perspective because we're hearing about... Uh, uh, the perfect storm and uh, all of these other problems uh, that many of us will remember hearing about for many years uh, discharging patients and step-down beds and all of that sort of thing. Uh, But it's an age-old problem. It's an annual problem. As I say, there's an historian writing about it in the paper today. Uh, In 2005, the INMO had a campaign called Enough is Enough and you were asking members of the public to send postcards to the government. People did that in their droves. Then uh, the Minister for Health eventually called it a national emergency, put in a 10-point plan. Uh, It was to be solved uh, beyond any shadow of a doubt by 2016 and here we are in 2023 same old story
10: indeed uh, the point is taken looking to the future uh, what we're seeking is Uh, immediate planning that this will never happen again. We are in the eye of a storm and we've got to address the problems that are there right now. And our members and other medical staff are doing everything they can to, 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 to alleviate the problems. But what we're saying is that there must be a framework in hospitals, particularly in the EDs, for safe staffing, appropriate skill mixes that is underpinned by legislation. And we, we, we have sought this already and this will be on the agenda. It is on the agenda now and uh, for the forthcoming year. And we'll be pursuing this until you have a safe staffing structure that is underpinned by legislation. We don't have that at the moment.
4: There's an infrastructural problem though as well, isn't there?
10: In, in, can you explain what you mean by that?
4: Well, uh, there's not enough room uh, and, there's certainly, and there's certainly not enough beds. And there's also then that uh, issue that goes back to 20, 25, 30 years uh, of people who are in hospital who should be cared for elsewhere. They're clinically discharged, uh, but they're taking up hospital beds.
10: Th- that's correct. Like, I mean, each and every aspect of the system, system in, in terms of patient flow, needs to be addressed there's, there's there's no doubt about that so the system itself needs to be overhauled and if it's if the crisis that we have today is not recognized as the crisis it is then we're in a problem it won't just go away again we have to start planning immediately uh, at a macro level in order to ensure this doesn't happen and we have to ensure that these measures are put in and underpinned by legislation.
4: Are your members indemnified uh, if something goes wrong? Uh, I mean, I'm sure there must be concern, not just on a, a personal level, but uh, from a liability perspective. Like
10: they are. They are. Mm-hmm.
4: Okay. Uh, that doesn't make it any better, though, from that personal perspective. It must be a very, very stressful situation. For, yeah.
10: Well, you know. they're always concerned about their practice, the professional practice, and they have an individual responsibility. But if the framework isn't there to support them, that puts a, a, an extra pressure on them, mm. an extra mental pressure.
4: Yeah. Uh, uh, and that's adding to the pressure that they're already uh, trying to. Uh, deal with uh, in terms of treating very very sick people it's an incredibly stressful job at the best of times and I I know that everybody applauds uh, the nurses around the country and the work that they're doing under normal circumstances but under these conditions uh, it really is very difficult uh, for them Uh, and you believe that that's one of the reasons that people are leaving the country as you said earlier on.
10: Oh, yeah, yes, we have no doubt about that. In fact, in the last year of uh, nurses that were recruited into the Irish system, in fact, up to two thirds came from overseas, which is extremely significant, I think. Uh, it's a, what, what, uh, that's a message to the government that something is seriously wrong, that we cannot recruit sufficient numbers of nurses from within the indigenous population.
4: Okay, uh, and uh, you're representing nurses in our Lady of Lourdes Hospital. There's been concern from the consultants there uh, about uh, additional patients coming from Navin. Are your members also concerned about that?
10: Absolutely. Uh, the minister announced uh, just before Christmas, which was not the best time to do it, uh, that The Nabin hospital for a certain serious category of patients would be bypassed and taken in Drogheda and that's adding to the pressures in Drogheda at the moment. In fact there wasn't uh, while it's been a political football for some time as you know the the issue about Nabin hospital, uh, the actual details of Uh, transferring or bypassing Navan Hospital and bringing ambulance to Drogheda wasn't sufficiently thought through and there wasn't sufficient consultation with clinical staff in Drogheda or
4: elsewhere. Indeed, there was an 11th hour turnaround uh, because of political communication, it seems. Uh, As best we understand it, uh, when Minister Thomas Byrne contacted Minister Stephen Donnelly uh, and then the protocol was put back a a couple of days uh, and we're told uh, it was changed uh, to some degree because it, it seems from what we're being told politically that the minister... Uh, was wrong-footed or didn't understand what the HSE was proposing or was told something else. Uh, Whatever happened was totally confusing and really uh, not uh, acceptable to people uh, in terms of understanding what's happening with such a critical service uh, in terms of uh, treating people and making sure that people's care is uh, to the best possible standard.
10: Yeah, when you describe the exchanges between the the two ministers, are you describing the scenario that took place just before Christmas in the middle of December? Uh,
4: Yes, I think it was. Yes, it was. Uh, On a Friday evening, the protocol was come into play on the Monday, on the Friday evening, on the Thursday evening, uh, I think Thomas Byrne called uh, the minister uh, and then suddenly it was put back to the Wednesday.
10: Yeah, well actually the reason that we were given uh for that was because there was an ambulance strike in the, in the north, north of at the time, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, and they were concerned about that and the impact of that uh on the
4: hospital. And as you remember, the protocol that should have come into play on the Monday was the same protocol that came into play on that Wednesday, was it? Yes. Yes, okay, yeah. Yeah. No, that's we've we've heard that uh, as well said uh but um I don't know.
10: Well, one of the the interesting things about that is that the uh, the people in the hospital, even the management in the hospital didn't actually see some of the reports which led to those changes. So they were being asked to rep- uh, implement changes and they did not see the report which led to the changes. Yeah,
4: Well, that report, doesn't so that, that review hasn't been published. Uh, it's been with yeah. the Minister since October. The Minister won't speak to this radio station. Freedom of information requests are, are denied. Uh, and it's all one great big mystery, but there's a lot of concern in Drogheda, obviously. Absolutely, absolutely. Okay. Boris, thank you for talking to us. Maurice Sheehan, Industrial Relations Officer with the INMO, the Irish Nurses and Midwives Organisation.
6: Michael Reed
4: on LMFM. Some terrible conditions uh, that uh, people have uh, been living with in rented uh, accommodation was highlighted in uh, the Irish Times this week. Uh, Some diligent work, it has to be said, done by Shauna Bowers, who looked at uh, the Residential Tenancies Board reports on their website from over a year, some 375 reports, uh, and found stories about soiled mattresses, uh, installing CCTV cameras, rats in kitchens, fake police telling people to leave the property uh, and more besides. Let's speak to John Mark McCaffrey, the CEO of the housing agency Threshold. Good morning to you, John Mark, and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme. Uh, were you surprised or shocked at all by any of those stories?
1: Good morning, Michael. Um, uh, I wasn't surprised. Um but all of these are, are, are shocking in their own way, um, and, and the, uh, you know, the soil mattresses, the rats, intimidation by fake police, you know, th- these are examples of the more um, extreme end of of, of what um, certain uh, landlords um, are doing. Um, but I think it's important to, to note that, you know, for the vast majority of uh, tenant-landlord relationships, they're positive, um, and they don't. Um, You'd go to those these kind of extents. However, I think it's really important that Shauna has shown up that this is uh, the risk. These are the realities facing certain tenants, um, and 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 these are the kind of ca- these are the kind of more extreme cases mm. that come before the RTB.
4: Uh, and seventy-five landlords uh, were said to have breached uh, their obligations. That resulted in, in uh, damages of between fifty euro. And €20,000 being paid out.
1: Indeed, yeah. And those awards are important because they're a recognition of the severity of the the treatment and um, the adverse experience uh, that um, has been experienced by the, the tenants in question. Um, but I think for a, a, a lot of the cases that are taken to the RTB, and we assist the threshold, we, we advise and we assist many of the, of the tenants that are taking cases to with the, the RTB, um, I, I think what's important to kind of note is that uh, a lot of the time what the tenant wants to do is just to hold on to their home. Mm. Um, now, sometimes it might be about a very specific thing um, and, and, and they want justice on that thing, but in order to... to um, protect tenancies and prevent homelessness and it's often appropriate that the, the landlord, you know, talks to the the, the the rather the tenant, you know, talks to the landlord about their issues. Yeah. But sometimes the relationship may have broken down. Now um, obviously and um, the, the best situation is some kind of um you know, arrangement, informal arrangement between landlord and tenant um, that, that fixes whatever issue or, or, or query um transpires. For others, it, it's some kind of mediation process, either kind of informally through ourselves and threshold. There is an, a, a more formal process through the, the Residential Tenancies Board. But then I guess these, these cases that we're talking about this mm. morning are around more extreme uh, situations yeah. where a, a dispute resolution
4: and so, through
1: the RTB so, is required. Some
4: of them really are very extreme, and uh, I know the threshold will help people through them. But imagine, the, imagine finding a, a camera in your living room or your bedroom Uh, worse still Uh, uh, it's beyond belief or fake police uh, telling someone that they had to leave intimidating them out there was a landlord who changed the locks the door hinges disconnected the electricity Uh, and then there was a a case of masked men waking up tenants uh, and uh, putting them out of uh, the property uh, onto the streets Uh, really beyond belief
1: yeah unfortunately it is the reality in, in a small number of cases um, and I think it points to the, the wider vulnerability that tenants experience renting in Ireland right now. Um, it's not the the, the the general experience of tenants, but certainly there is a risk that these kind of things can occur by uh, unethical landlords. Um, and I, I suppose, you know, tenants are mindful of, about holding on to their tenancy. They know there's very little um, alternative accommodation if their tenancy ends. So uh, they're often trying to keep their, their heads low they're often not going to their, their landlords seeking things when they really should be. For example, if a boiler's faulty or needs replaced, or if there's mould or damp, those kind of things. And um, they don't. Uh, they're they're reticent to go to their their landlords in case the landlord increases the rent or, or or indeed ends the tenancy
4: mm. oh, um, Of course they can't do that uh, uh, And uh, I know that Threshold will help people through that and uh, if people are concerned, uh, well worth looking at uh, your website threshold.ie and making contact with you. About of time John Mark, I ran over on other pro- uh, items but thank you indeed uh, for your time and for joining us Thanks. John Mark McCarthy, CEO of Threshold. That's our programme for today, God willing we'll see you for our next programme on Monday morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning, bye bye
3: The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with
4: Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway. Like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more.